everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree. For more insightful content, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us on Kindred Cast today. Thank you. It's really great to be here. I've had the luck of being a friend of yours for a few years now, so I'm excited for the rest of the world and for our listeners to understand your story a little bit better. So I want to just give everyone a little bit of an understanding of your background because it's pretty impressive. So you are the Undersecretary for Science and Research at the Smithsonian Institute. That means that you oversee the science museums and science research centers, as well as the Smithsonian Libraries and Archives, the Office of International Relations, Smithsonian Scholarly Press, and Scientific Diving Program. I've read that you attended your first rocket launch at four years old. Your father had a history at NASA. You're a pioneer in many different fields, including Venus geology. So you work in a field that many don't properly grasp. It can feel wildly intangible. How did you manage to hold on to it and what drew you into the space of space? Well, you know, as a kid, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist, but frankly, there weren't that many role models out there. This was the 1960s. And if I went to the library, I would only find books about Marie Curie, which was great, but you know, come on. But my parents got National Geographic, so I would read stories about Jane Goodall and about Mary Leakey studying human origins in Africa. And I thought, I could be a scientist because these women are out there doing amazing things, and maybe I could too. I didn't really think about NASA, to be honest with you, because everybody who worked at NASA looked like my dad. And my dad was an engineer, and I wasn't really sure what engineering was. I knew he worked on rockets, you know, it was this weird thing. But by the time I was, I guess, 14, um, my dad was in charge of the rocket that was launching the first landers to Mars. And we were down in Florida for the launch. I had been going to launches since I was four years old. I've seen a lot of rockets blow up, not with people on them. And Carl Sagan, who was a member of the Viking mission team, was giving a talk to all the families of NASA folks that were down there about why we were exploring Mars, searching for life, the fact that you could study Mars as this analog to the Earth. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be a planetary geologist. And that was what I did. Mars as a way to study the Earth. And I do think that's an important point right there because most people, when they think about space exploration and research, do really quantify it around everything outside of Earth. But obviously, it's so interrelated to everyday happenings with individuals and interspecies outcomes. So when you started to embark on that study, did you find that most of the research you ended up doing was related back to Earth? or that it was more about interplanetary exploration? To me, ultimately, why we're exploring always comes back to our home planet, because I sometimes use the analogy, think of a doctor who only had one patient. They would never understand the progression of disease, like diabetes or cancer. And planets are kind of like that, too. If you really want to understand volcanism, how planetary surfaces change over time, how planets evolve, having only the Earth to study is really limiting. For example, one of the reasons we really understand Earth's climate and how it's changing and why it's changing is because we can look at the climate of Mars, the climate of Venus, the climate of one of Saturn's moons called Titan that has an atmosphere. So planets, having multiple planets allows you to test models and come back and apply those and understand the Earth a lot better. 
I study volcanoes around the solar system, and I study volcanoes right here on Earth and use that knowledge really to understand how does a volcano work, and you need lots of planets to be able to do that. Obviously, storytelling and that access to National Geographic was such an important beginning for you and your research and that inspiration. Did you find that you were always welcomed in the categories that and you know places of work you went into, or was that a bit of a challenge as you embarked? I was really lucky. I had elementary school teachers who knew I wanted to be a scientist and really supported me. My parents supported me. As an undergraduate, I had huge support from my professors who were, you know, when you think back on it, you're like, it's kind of weird. Here they had this student coming in as a freshman going, I'm going to be a planetary geologist. They're like, yeah, great. How can we help you? And so many women don't have those experiences. They don't have necessarily support from their family. You know, in fact, they get the opposite from teachers or professors. They literally get harassed. I finally did have bad experiences. Don't get me wrong. As a woman in a field dominated by men, I got called little girl by a coworker. I was in many experiences where I was made to feel like you're different from everyone else in this room and it's not clear you belong here. So I did have those experiences, but I had them later when I was older and I was a little more resilient. And so a big part of what I care about now is how do we give girls, certainly in this country, but around the world, how do we be that voice of support? How do we be that person who's saying, no, you belong, you can do this. If one were to look at your career, it's very fascinating to go from being the chief scientist at NASA, then going into the air and space and then Smithsonian there is an undercrux of education to everything that you've always participated in. And so how have you seen that evolve to get audiences to care about the true core of your work? You hit on it earlier when you said it's about storytelling. And these are things I care deeply about. Obviously, I love NASA and I have incredible passion for exploration and why we explore and getting humans to Mars. I want people to share that excitement. And to me, the way you do it is through storytelling. Why are we doing this exploration? Where are we going? But then you have issues that have come up, especially in the last 20 or so years around climate. And the planet is facing a climate crisis. So how do we use scientific storytelling to get the public engaged, to get them to understand we have a biodiversity crisis on this planet? We have a climate crisis on this planet. And how do we use the science that we're doing to get the public engaged and to make them realize they have a role in making this planet sustainable for the future. But when you talk about the exploration or better learning around Mars, I think most individuals think of that as abandoning Earth or that we're beyond the point of return. And so I am curious about, should we be betting more on Earth and what do we need to learn more about to feel more optimistic about the relationship and outcome we can have around the climate crisis. Carl Sagan said it better than I definitely ever could have. And for people who are curious, go read his pale blue dot speech. The earth is where we make our stand, is what he said. There is no planet B. Mars is great. I do want to send humans there. We think life could have evolved there three and a half billion years ago. That would be really amazing to find a second genesis of life and really understand the nature of life itself if we could find another place where it evolved. But you're not going to move lots of humans to Mars. It's tough. The surface is radiated. It's cold. Air is not breathable. This planet is the planet for humanity. And right now we're pushing the planet towards its boundaries. We do still have the ability to pull it back. 
Are we going to see the effects of climate change no matter what we do about carbon in our atmosphere? Yes, you see things like what's happened in Seattle over the last couple of weeks, crazy temperatures, huge rainfall. Those are the kind of things that are going to become more common over the next couple of decades. We are going to see some degree of sea level rise that's going to be harmful to coastlines around the world. But we still have a chance to pull back if we move towards net zero over the coming decades. We have to do this. It's an imperative. In your career, you probably have had many opportunities to work fully for private individuals, private funded, and you've really worked in the public sphere, maybe with less resources, but a lot more maybe commitment to some of the core functionalities of government and work. Does this mean that nation states need to be working in a different capacity to be dealing with impending climate refugees or some of these things where there's sort of the crux of process and financial institutions versus climate needs for Earth? How do we move some of these boundaries that feel like they're moving at a glacial pace for something that we're already over the goal line of need? I think it's all about how do you balance what the planet needs with what human needs. We're humans in nature. We're not humans against nature is what we should be evolving to. How do humans live sustainably on this planet? And for me, while private individuals have a role, right, it is still important that we don't use plastic bags and that we make personal choices around our carbon footprint. Governments have to act. And that's why I do work on the Smithsonian as a quasi-public institution. You know, I worked for NASA, which is a government institution. And for me as a scientist, the work the government is doing is really critical in gathering data and that that data then gets turned into information for policymakers to say, should we build this hospital close to a shoreline that's going to be affected by a sea level rise? Or in the case of a lot of the really cool research we're doing at the Smithsonian, if you create a marine protected reserve out in the ocean, does biodiversity actually come back? Can we make coastlines more resilient to sea level rise to help protect the people that live there? And when you go out into certain landscapes, are there ways to preserve human activity so that you can economically benefit from land while bringing biodiversity back while reducing carbon footprint? So I think there are ways to use science, to use data, to use research, to find solutions to get us through this climate crisis. How do we balance the needs of some of the biodiversity challenges that we're seeing as impacted by humans with the reality that we have an ever-growing population? Even in some of the responses from the pandemic, how do we as a people balance that evolutionary outcome? Well, I think the fact is 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when you only had maybe three or four billion people on this planet, we could live sustainably, right? We didn't use more resources than the planet could provide every year. And that stopped about a decade ago. And now it's about August of every year where we've actually used up our year's worth of allocation of planetary resources. So we really have to think about how do we move that needle back? And to me, it's a combination of, yes, we probably say take fishing, There are areas where we have to say, okay, stop fishing. You have to let the stocks rebound, the fishing stocks rebound. On the other hand, there's still people and we need to eat. And so can we really come up with, again, research-based solutions that say, how do you fish sustainably rather than overfishing? How do you combine purpose-built fisheries versus just fishing out in the open ocean where we have depleted fishing stocks. It's all about finding sustainable solutions. Sometimes I'm a pessimist, sometimes I'm an optimist, but I am an optimist that it is, again, humans in nature. And I don't think of it so much as putting humans first. I think it's about putting humans in balance with 
biodiversity. You were appointed uh, leader of President Biden's NASA agency review team. That team is sort of to brief the incoming administration on activities and ensure a smooth transition of power. You've also been a part of working for many different administrations over the course of your career. How much does political affiliation affect space and geological exploration prioritization? It really hasn't. And that's, to me, an incredibly positive thing. I mean, NASA over the years has had incredible bipartisan support. And in fact, you see that right now where under the Obama administration, NASA had a plan to go back to the moon and on to Mars. The Trump administration continued that plan. And now you see the Biden administration moving that same plan forward. NASA is a 10, 20, 30 year agency And it really needs that bipartisan support. It needs buy-in from both sides to be able to do the kind of long-term planning. NASA can't change every two years and the house turns over. So having that bipartisan support, having that long-term vision that everyone buys into is incredibly important. And I think especially over the last decade, you've seen stability in that bipartisan vision for NASA that's really helped it move forward. Both parties acknowledge the Earth science work that NASA does is important. Exploration of Mars, searching for life in the universe has incredible bipartisan support. So that makes it a much easier environment to work in. But climate change as a word combination is increasingly polarizing, right? And something that doesn't have as much bipartisan, maybe on the top level, relationship set. So how do you deal with that, which is at odds with each other because climate change, as you were talking about, and the research that you're doing is interrelated. So how do we address that? I feel like that's starting to ebb. And you Mm -hmm. saw just recently the Republican Party formed a climate caucus. And so I think there's increasing understanding that the climate is changing and that humans are the underlying cause and that we have to find solutions. Now, do the two parties agree on solutions? No. But if you at least agree on the underlying cause, and I think that's reflective that actually the Yale Climate Center and Pew have been returning a lot of data that seems to show that now there's a far majority of the public, sometimes up in the 80th percentile of the public who say, yeah, we understand that climate. I don't like to use the word believe because it's not Mm. a belief. It's a scientific fact Mm. who understand that climate change is happening. And frankly, when it's 110 in Seattle, it focuses the fact that the evidence that we see every year that climate change is happening, it's not some theoretical model, it is actually happening right now. And the evidence for that has become really overwhelming. What I think is interesting is some of the data the Yale Climate Center has also picked up on is when people get asked, will climate change affect you personally? A lot of people, except people who live right along the coastlines, who are obviously worried about sea level rise, the bulk of the country says, no, it's not going to affect me. Oh, it is going to affect you. And we need to do a better job of explaining how. And I think you see it in terms of temperature patterns, rainfall patterns really changing. For example, the whole Western U.S. right now is in a drought. Did we have droughts before human-induced climate change? Yes, we did. What is changing is the severity and length of those droughts. And so you really have to think, you mentioned climate refugees, especially as we look around the world, we look at vulnerable, low-lying areas around the world where you are going to have to see people moving away from the coastline as sea levels rise, as you get more intense storms. But the thing is, that's going to happen over the next 30 to 50 years. So we have time as a global population to prepare for this. How do we protect humanity from the effects of climate change that are 
going to occur no matter what we do at this point about reducing carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere. We have time to prepare for that, but we need to be working on it in a serious way now. Where do and how do we get people to individually say, climate change will affect me and I need to be a part of maybe a group or a global sacrifice to make that choice? Do you believe that's the Smithsonian's job or whose job is it to help create more of that change? I think the Smithsonian has a role to play and certainly reaching out across the country and making sure we're telling relevant stories. Whether you live in Los Angeles or whether you live in Oklahoma, we should be talking to those people about what they're seeing, what they're experiencing, what the science is telling us, what are stories around what the science is telling us, because you don't want to go in and try to present complicated models to people, right? You want to say, here's what we think is going to happen in your area over the next 20 years. Are you already seeing the effects of this? To me, it's going out across the country, across the world, and telling compelling stories of evidence of how the climate is changing, what we're seeing, what we think could happen in the future, and what are solutions. Because one of the things the scientific community has certainly been worried about is we don't want to frighten people into inaction because you want people to understand how serious this is, but you don't want them to think, oh, there's no hope, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing that makes a difference. And again, a lot of the research that we're doing here at the Smithsonian is around those very things, solutions. How do we understand how various ecosystems near shore coastal environments where you have things like mangroves and seagrasses and reefs that protect our coastline, how are they being affected by temperature rise and sea level rise? And are there ways to make those coastal ecosystems more resilient to help protect our coastlines and protect the fish that live there that many people rely on? So there are solutions out there. We can use research, we can use science to help find those. And then even more importantly, because we're the Smithsonian, talk about that to the public so that they say, we do see a path forward. Do you ever think about having the Smithsonian work with larger content companies or distribution opportunities to make it so that you're making these topics feel more approachable and not that every option and outcome is a dystopic option? You know, we do. And it was funny at the Air and Space Museum, we actually um, worked on a, we had a session at one point uh, talking about science fiction because the Air and Space mm. Museum, we actually hold a lot of science fiction collections. We have the papers of Arthur C. Clarke. I actually really love dystopic science fiction. And one of the reasons I love it is because if you can articulate the future that you're worried about, it gives people a clearer path to me to avoid it. So why are we so fascinated with dystopic Let's imagine the worst thing that could happen and let's pull back from that and think about how they got there and how do we prevent that from happening. So many books I've read, crazy, interesting books about pandemics. Okay, we just lived through one. It was certainly a global tragedy that we hope is slowly coming to an end. But to me, people have been thinking about this and science fiction has been really useful in terms of imagining the future and then we can either invent some of those cool things like tricorders that can remotely measure your health state, which people are actually working on. But we can also think about things like global pandemics and how we could better avoid them. I do think this imagining has an important role. But again, you don't want people to get totally caught up in 
a negative future is the only future that we can see going forward. There are positive futures, there are positive outcomes. And the Smithsonian is going to be doing in the coming year a really exciting exhibit at our arts and industries building called Futures because of this idea that we create the future. We have agency in what our future is. And a lot of the times I think people feel powerless. They feel like they don't have agency. And so one of the really fun things that my colleague Rachel Goslins is doing with this exhibit is really going to get people to say, look, there are multiple paths we can go down. Whose decision is it? It's our decision. We're in charge of creating our own future. And I really hope that at the Smithsonian, we can get people starting to think about, should humans go to Mars? Is that a good idea? Should we be creating hotels on the moon? What are the implications of flying cars? How are these things going to change our future? But one of the things that I found really interesting was that when Rachel did some research getting ready for the Futures exhibit, a lot of what she heard when she talked, when they went out and started surveying people was the human side. When they thought about the future, they thought about how I want to have close relationships with my family and friends. People actually didn't talk about flying cars. They talked about personal things, personal relationships. And I really love that. That's something that actually makes me optimistic about the future is the fact that fundamentally what we care about are our human relationships, which I think is great. Yeah, I do too. And going back to that notion that human emotion doesn't change, boundaries change. And so how do we pick outcomes or work together on paths that allow for that humanity in each of these decisions to go forward in that choice? You know, I am curious, of course, what you do think about consumer space travel. And if you do think that it's on the horizon, if so, is that a good choice? Is that a good allocation of resources? What are you seeing from your perspective? Obviously, I've made it clear I'm a fan of science fiction and my favorite COVID <laughs> lockdown show was The Expanse. Um, and, and so to me, this humanity as a multi-planet species, once we make it through climate change, to me is almost an inevitability that we will move beyond this planet, not to escape this planet, but because it, to me, it's in our nature to move outward, to explore, to move beyond. It's what we did on this planet, and I think it's what we'll continue to do in the future. And I think space tourism is just the next logical step in that. Is there an economic model that allows you to have manufacturing in space, create power in space, create new materials, new pharmaceuticals in space? Is there a viable commercial model for hotels in space, hotels on the moon? Right now, those things are incredibly expensive. And that's why you've seen people like Bezos and Musk put a huge emphasis on getting launch costs down because the most expensive part of space travel is getting something off the surface of the Earth and away from Earth's gravity. And so we're never going to really have viable commercial activities in space until we can drive the cost of launching things and bringing them back to Earth down. And that's where they've put their investment. To me, I'm really excited about this potential era of space commercialization, space tourism. Right now, is it only the domain of the very wealthy? Yes. But frankly, that's the way airplane travel started out too. It was heavily government subsidized. And at first, only the very wealthy could fly. So that Starlink would almost be an example of a theoretical innovation 
where space is the link to that, of getting people connected and using space as the vehicle. Yeah, I really do think it's a natural progression. The history of moving forward technologically has been initial government investment, heavy government investment, and then the private sector stepping in when they could see a profit motive. The private sector is not going to do something unless they say, hey, I can make money off this. And we've really seen that jumping forward, first with communication satellites, then with Earth observation satellites. And now we're trying to see, is there a human element where companies can see a profit motive? If they can't drive to a profit motive, it's not going to work. And so I think that's what we're going to see over the next 10, 15 years is can companies actually make money beyond communication satellites, Earth observation satellites? Is there money there to be made? Because if there's money, companies will move in. And people often will ask me, are they going to take over NASA? To me, that allows NASA to say, all right, now we can go spend our resources investing for the government on things we should be looking for life in the solar system, looking for life in the universe moving humans out in an exploration mode, not a routine profit-making mode. So to me, NASA's role would be continually pushing those boundaries and let the private sector do what they're capable of doing and they can make money. One of the questions we talk about a lot here on Kindred is this relationship between public and private and how more things have become privatized over the last 50 or 60 years just based on resources and speed and things of that nature. When you're talking about NASA or this progression, then do you see it as privatization becomes more of the norm and the government resource is the fundamental research underlying, but it's not the facilitating structure? Do nation states matter as much in space over time? I think they continue to matter because there's always going to be that harder thing that you want to do that, again, a company doesn't see a profit motive in. And so if you say, even once we got humans on Mars and would there be a way for Mars tourism, for example, and so maybe the private sector would even take that over, well, what would NASA do then? NASA would say, wow, could we send humans out to Saturn's moon Titan? Or they would say, how do we build even bigger telescopes so we can image a planet around another star and try to find out, is there an Earth 2.0 in another galaxy somewhere? They would start thinking about how do we really push towards interstellar travel, not just travel within our own solar system. So there's always going to be, to me, something that fundamentally there's no profit motive. Therefore, it does stay with the nation state. It stays with government investment. And what I love, if you look at, again, space in the 1960s, there were certainly companies involved. NASA had lots of contractor companies, but face it, it was all government money. Now you have private dollars being invested, which is great because, you know, especially as a scientist, that means more is happening. More data is being collected. We're learning more. We're moving outward. And frankly, it also used to be, it started out, it was just the United States and Russia, then the Soviet Union. And now there's over 16 space agencies around the world that are involved in thinking about how to get humans to the moon. So you've got small countries who never could have dreamed they had a space program because the barrier to entry, the cost to entry has come down so much. So it's really exciting. When we get humans to Mars, I think it will be a public-private partnership. And I think it will be international. It won't look like the crew that we sent to the moon for the first time. What would be the decade that you think that could happen in? We are capable, certainly, of sending humans to Mars towards the end of the 2030s. 
early 2040s. So I'm still betting on that. Now, could it be sooner? Yes. If we invested more, it could be sooner. Could it be longer if we get, for example, sidetracked at the moon and don't move towards getting humans to Mars? So I can see multiple potential paths. I want to see humans on Mars by the mid-2030s, and I don't know if that'll happen. And my frustration with that is I really do think that we would find evidence of past life on Mars. And I do think it's going to take humans breaking open a lot of rocks, covering a lot of ground in the ways that our robotic rovers just can't do. And so that scientific piece to me and the fact I have to wait for it is very frustrating. But you believe that it will be in our lifetime. I do. I do think that because again, technologically, and one of the things I always like to say is in 1960, when Kennedy set the goal of getting humans to the moon, we didn't have spacesuits. We didn't have really working rockets, and we certainly didn't have a rocket big enough to get humans to the moon. We didn't know how to keep people alive in space. And we figured all that out. Nine years later, we successfully landed humans on the surface of the moon. So in my mind, there's no technological things that we can't figure out. We are so far ahead of where we were. We know how to keep people alive in space. Yes, there are technological challenges to getting to Mars, but it's nothing that couldn't get overcome within the next decade. And I don't want to skirt away from some of the important work that's happening in the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian has such an incredible archive of our past. And so much of public discourse over the last 12 to 24 months has been about reshaping history to be more truthful in its actions. So how do you sort of work with being a representative of the past and also doing all of this research for the future? You know, to me, that's incredibly important because when you talk about things like solving the climate crisis, when you talk about things like not to equate them, getting humans to Mars, the only way we're going to be able to do that is if everyone is participating and we're really tapping in to the best minds everywhere. And the only way we're going to do that is to start making science, technology, engineering, math, computing, design, make those things more inclusive than they are now. I spent most of my career being the only person in the room who looked like me. And in my mind, that has to stop. What I loved at the Air and Space Museum and what we're doing across the Smithsonian is really reflecting on whether we're telling all the stories. Most people have heard of Amelia Earhart, the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. How many people have heard of Bessie Coleman? who was the first black woman to get her pilot's license. She had to go to France to do it. This was a decade before Amelia Earhart ever got in an airplane. She went over to France, got a pilot's license, came back and was a barnstorming pilot here in the United States and would only fly at shows where blacks and whites were allowed to be there together. She's a pioneer. Everyone should know her name. Every kid should be educated about her because I want every kid that walks into a Smithsonian museum to see stories around people who looked like them, who did amazing things. And those stories are there. We just haven't been telling them. And so across the Smithsonian, we're really reflecting on how do we make sure we're telling the story of all Americans. You just mentioned the museum, and I think that story is incredibly important. And so many more of those stories need to become uncovered. So as you said, the young kid that walks in sees themselves in the future and sees you and is like, oh my gosh, I want to do that. And I didn't even understand this was a piece of how that happened. Is the museum actually the function in the future? Is the museum physically as relevant as we move towards this digital identity future? 
clearly over the past year, the Smithsonian has put a huge effort into really pivoting to digital because we had to, all the museums shut down. And it's something, frankly, we should have been doing anyway. We knew that. And we've really pivoted, especially in our educational programs. We have a whole area called the Learning Lab, huge resources for teachers, for parents, and really reflecting on our collections and our stories that we hold. But I do think that there is a role for museums always in the future, because frankly, there is a magic in standing in front of something. For example, the Columbia Command Module that took the astronauts to the moon, to Neil Armstrong's spacesuit, which you can stand next to in the museum and say, that thing went to the moon. To seeing the ruby slippers in person It's magical because it's the thing that becomes real. So the fact that we do have millions of people who come through the Smithsonian every year from all around the world, I think reflects on the importance of the actual, of people having that in-person experience. One of the things, though, that we've really been evolving at museums is how do we tell those stories? You know, when I used to go into museums when I was a kid, and frankly, there's still some out there where you go in the museum and the ruby slippers will be a label, ruby slippers. You're like... Where are we going with this? And what museums are really evolving to is storytelling. How did those slippers change the world? How did that movie become such an iconic cultural thing in this country? How do you bring people into the story? It's not just a thing. That thing holds the story of the people who made it, the people who used it, and how it shaped this country going forward. And it's that compelling storytelling that museums are really moving toward. And there's no better example of that than the African-American History and Culture Museum at the Smithsonian, where the very way you experience the museum, starting in the basement, in the dark with the story of slavery and moving up into the light, it's fantastic, really moving experience. One of my closing questions would be actually, which I hadn't even thought about, but what is your favorite item that the Smithsonian has? People ask me that, and I always joke, I've got three kids, and so it's like one of your kids saying to you, am I your favorite? No, I love all my (laughs) children equally. At the Air and Space Museum, I was totally torn, and this is really funny, between two artifacts. The SR-71 was a spy plane, a supersonic plane, on its way to be delivered to the Air and Space Museum. It flew from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. in one hour and four minutes. And it's just, to me, the pinnacle of beautiful design which I really love. So I love that airplane. But the other airplane, I really love it. And it's not a space thing, right? And I'm not a pilot. So you'd be like, why do you love these airplanes so much? But the other thing I really love is we have this cherry red Lockheed Vega that Amelia Earhart flew. It's just the fact that it's this defiant red airplane to me personifies these early women aviators who had to go up against so much. People didn't think they belonged in the air. People didn't think they should be in air races. People didn't think they should be out there setting records. And these early women aviators defied expectations, defied convention to show that women could perform as well as men could, if not better. So I love that airplane. But I will say we get a lot of visitors to the museum who say, is that the plane she disappeared in? Um, no. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, clearly you are an incredible scientist and pioneer just as a wonderful human being, but also for all of the ways that you've pushed forward for work for women and for other people and innovation. So we are very proud to have you on the podcast today. And thank you so much for the work that you do, not only for our planet, but for our solar system and beyond. Thank you. It was really wonderful to talk to you today. Thanks, Ellen. I hope you enjoyed our show today. 
If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. 